Before we get into our study this morning, very important, important study, let's have a word of prayer together. Father in heaven, we thank you so much for this holy Sabbath day. We thank you for the opportunity that we have to come together and worship thee in spirit and in truth. We pray for the Holy Spirit to be poured out as we get into your holy word. We wish to understand what it is that uh, we study here uh, today. Uh, please be with those who couldn't be with us. Be with those on our prayer lists. And uh, Father, we thank you so much for Jesus, who came here willingly, died on the cross so that we may be saved. We ask forgiveness for our sins, and we claim his blood that was shed there. We look forward to the day that he comes to receive those who have accepted this most precious gift. Please give me the words to speak, and I ask this in Jesus' blessed name, for he's so worthy. Amen. Well, friends, <clears throat> I've entitled this particular message, Secret Sins. Secret Sins. Uh, and I was thinking about this uh, in this particular study about keeping things secret and such, and in, in the grand scope of uh, the great controversy, and... and I just thought, you know, you hear it, it's almost cliche among Adventists especially because our belief is that we look forward to the return of Jesus. And, and, and I just want you to, to think about this question. Do you have a longing for the return of Jesus? Do you believe that he's returning for a church that is without spot or wrinkle? Have you ever wondered why it is that he delays his return? And do you really, <clears throat> excuse me, realize that we can actually help speed things along and hasten his coming? Well, some say, well, what does that mean, Pastor? Well, let's look at 2 Peter chapter 3. I'm going to read verses 9 to 12. Peter says here, he says, The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to usward not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in the which the heavens shall pass away with a great noise, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. The earth also and the works that are therein shall be burned up. Seeing then that all these things shall be dissolved, what manner of persons ought ye to be in all holy conversation and godliness? Looking for and hasting unto the coming of the day of God, <clears throat> wherein the heavens being on the fire, excuse me, where, wherein the heavens being on fire shall be dissolved and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. So Peter's asking this question. What manner of person should we be? Not only do should we be those who look for the coming of Jesus, but hasting unto the coming of the day of God. And that Greek word rendered hasting, it's the Greek word spudo. It means to urge on, to hasten, of course, uh, to hasten after anything, to await with eager desire. Uh, it's the, the state of mind which is, is indicated by the word is that when we are anxiously desirous that something should occur, we would hasten or accelerate it if we could. Is it possible? 
Can we truly hasten Christ's return? Lord, let it be so. And if it be so, why are we still here? Have you thought of that? I get to that sometimes. I think, why are we still here? Well, there can be several reasons for Jesus delaying uh, that may have very little to do with us personally, but have you ever thought, is it I? Could it be that Jesus is delaying his, his return because of me? It's an incredible thought, isn't it? Reminds me of the last Passover supper when Jesus said that there was one there that was a devil and would betray him. What was the response of each of the disciples when Jesus said that? Well, if you go to Matthew chapter 26 and look at verse 22, it says, And they were exceeding sorrowful and began every one of them to say unto him, Lord, is it I? Now, the form of the question in Greek implies that a negative answer was actually expected, as if they said, It isn't I, Lord, is it? Have you ever asked the Lord that question about yourself? Do you realize, beloved, that there will be one person who will be the very last one who is saved? There will be one last name that will be written in the Lamb's Book of Life. Now, I've thought about that, and I've even thought, what if it's me? Could I be the one person who Jesus is waiting upon in order to stand up, throw down the censer, and say, it is done. And if it is me, is it because of a sin of ignorance or a secret sin that, that he delays his coming? And if so... Well, thank you, dear Jesus, for loving me that much to show me so much mercy in waiting just for me. But if we can hasten the return of Jesus, are we actually hastening it? And what could be holding up the works because he hasn't returned? I mean, outside of what we know of prophecy, there are a few things that are to be fulfilled yet. But those things could be sped up. That's a part of the hastening. And these are things I've thought about when I came across this quote I've shared with you uh, in part before. <clears throat> it's from Signs of the Times, October 1st, 1894. It says, Sinners must know what is sin before they can have a desire to be rid of sin. It is a matter of eternal interest that we, we do not misconceive this vital question. When appeals are made in the pulpits of our land and sinners are invited to repent and to be converted, it is the privilege of the sinner to inquire, What is sin? This we must know, for it is at the peril of our souls that we continue in sin. And friends, it's because of what I know of our Lord and Savior that I believe He tarries due to our need to be fully cleansed of sin. And in order for us to be cleansed, to be spotless and undefiled, well, we each must know what sin is. And we need to know how to be rid of it once and for all. And this is the reason, really, for this series of studies that I entitled The Sin Issue. I wanted to be sure that we knew and understand what sin is, 
and how to overcome it so that not only will we be ready to meet Jesus, we can actually hasten his return. So we've looked at why there is sin and and the consequences of it. We've defined exactly what sin is and where it begins. And understand that temptation is not a sin. We looked at how we make decisions and the need to have our conscience educated. We took a close look at the temptations of Jesus the last time we were together. We looked at what was at the heart of each temptation and how Jesus was able to reject them. And I believe that this is knowledge that, that's been imparted by the Holy Spirit so that we can be ready for Jesus to come and hasten, actually, his return. But none of this knowledge, none of this information is new. It may be new to us, but it's been around for a long time. So long that one would think a people could have been ready before now, you know. What could be delaying the coming of Jesus? Now, I know that's a loaded question. But at the heart of it is the heart of this study. It has to do with the sin issue. Our God is loving and merciful, but he will not wait on us forever, friends. There has to be a reason that involves this issue of sin that prolongs the finishing of the great controversy between Christ and Satan. So what about secret sins? Have you ever heard about secret sins? You know, the psalmist says in Psalms 90, verse 8, Thou hast set our iniquities before thee, our secret sins in the light of thy countenance. The Hebrew word for secret is alam, and it's a primitive root word that other words join on to in some of the Hebrew, but th- this is a root word, and it means to veil from sight, that is, conceal. This may refer to the, the secret or hidden things of our lives, or, or to what has been concealed in our own heart. And the meaning of this quote may be that God is judged in the case not by external appearances or by what is seen by the world even, but by what he has seen in the person's heart and that he deals with us according to our real character. So, of course, the reference is to sin, but sin as concealed, hidden, maybe even forgotten, the sin of the heart, the sin which we have endeavored to hide from the world, the sin which has passed away from maybe even our own recollection. The psalmist is telling us that God sees our sins as they aren't secret to him. And instead of hiding his face from our sins, he sets them all before himself and drags them all to the light. It's very, very interesting. When we read this, we understand what John means by God is love. God is not bringing these sins out so that we may be ashamed. He's not bringing them to the light in order to 
to shame us or punish us, but he wants us to know what they are and know how serious our condition is. You know, in other Bible passages where it says, the light of thy countenance, it denotes his favor towards the person. But here a slightly different word is used. It literally says, the luminary of thy face. It's used to to denote his presence as a searching light from which nothing can be hid. Luke chapter 8 verse 17 says, For nothing is secret that shall not be made manifest, neither anything hid that shall not be known and come abroad. That's what Jesus said. It's all going to come to light. And God wants to bring these secret sins out into the open, to bring them to the light in his presence. See? And that's the key. The key is that it is God who brings these secret sins to light in His presence. Now, He may do it in different ways, and it may become known to others around the world, but He's specifically bringing them out in His presence so that we can have confidence that He will help us deal with them. You know, we tend to hang on to sins, don't we? Sins that our carnal nature craves and And it's a real battle to give them up. It's the greatest battle that is ever waged is the battle of the will. Our freedom to choose, but we battle because we have those cravings to do what's wrong. And you've heard me say on several occasions that self, this carnal nature, this self has to be crucified. It has to be murdered. It has to be put to death as it's never going to commit suicide. Self will not kill self. So it has to be put to death. So God will bring secret sins to light and educate us about it so we can pray for help to overcome them. And it can be a very hard battle to do so. And even while we are battling, we don't want anyone to know about it. I mean, because of embarrassment or shame. And so what do we do? We keep it a secret if we can. And I'll show you a couple instances of that in a moment. But I want you to know, and I want to emphasize, that our God loves us so much that He will not let us go without a fight. He will fight for us. And so He does, and and sometimes it gets to a point where the best course, for our best good, though at the time we may not agree, uh, Secret sins will come to light. They will come abroad, as Jesus said. And they will be laid out before others. And that's hard. The shame is hard, isn't it? But we have to remember, God always has our best interest at heart. God always, friends, has our best interest at heart. And God never makes a mistake. God wants us to have life and live with Him forever, but we need educated. We need educated in righteousness. And not only educated, because knowledge doesn't save you, but that but you have to have knowledge. We also need to be cleaned up. Peter says in Acts 2 and verse 28, he says, Thou hast made known to me the ways of life. Thou shalt make me full of joy with thy countenance. This is what God wants for all of us. He wants to teach us about sin so that we can repent, change directions, and be made clean so we will live with Him forever. 
Now, I want to share something with you out of Psalms 51. Most people, they know Psalms 51, uh, especially like verse 10 and on, but I want to share with you verses 6 and 7. Psalms 51, verses 6 and 7. Behold, thou desirest truth in the inward parts, and in the hidden part thou shalt make me to know wisdom. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Friends, God wants to reveal to us our sins so that we may know the truth. Be filled with wisdom and choose to be made clean. So when we think about why Jesus hasn't returned yet, we need to understand that it cannot be because he's inattentive or he, he doesn't want to return. He wants everyone to be saved, you see. But could it be that it's secret sins that is the cause for Christ's delay? And more than that, is this the reason we see such a, a lack of spiritual power exhibited by his church, his people, which would delay the finishing of the work that he's given us to do, and thus that would delay his return as well? So as I study about this issue, I become more burdened by the thought that there are secret sins among God's people. And these secret sins are preventing the power of Jesus from being manifested within his church and thus delaying the finishing of the work and ultimately his return. And just as God wants to bring such things to light, by his grace, I want to bring the idea to light with you so we can seek out the Lord for help. Therefore, I want us to consider four interrelated results of secret sins. And by these, we can be more able to seek out the Lord's help and deal with them as he has instructed us to do. In fact, before we end this series, uh, I'll go through how we are to deal with sin uh, in the church. So, to begin, what, what are secret sins? Just in case you missed it. What are secret sins? Well, simply put, they are cherished sins that are practiced by an individual or a group within the church and which are hidden from the church body as a whole. That's about as uh, simply as I can put it. And for the purpose of time, uh, we're only going to consider the secret sins pertaining to an individual in this study. And I want to begin by sharing an instance uh, that we're all familiar with, I believe, uh, uh, where God dealt with a secret sin in a supernatural way himself. So let's go to Acts chapter 5. Acts chapter 5, verse 1. And we're going to look at the case of Ananias and Sapphira. Acts chapter 5, verse 1. But a certain man named Ananias with Sapphira his wife sold a possession and kept back part of the price, his wife also being privy to it, and brought a certain part and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why hath Satan filled thine heart to lie to the Holy Ghost and to keep back part of the price of the land? Whilst it remained, was it not thine own? 
And after it was sold, was it not in thine own power? Why hast thou conceived this thing in thine heart? Thou hast not lied unto men, but unto God. And Ananias, hearing these words, fell down and gave up the ghost. And great fear came on all them that heard these things. And the young men arose, wound him up, and carried him out and buried him. And it was about the space of three hours after when his wife, not knowing what was done, came in. And Peter answered unto her, Tell me whether ye sold the land for so much. And she said, Yea, for so much. Then Peter said unto her, How is it that ye have agreed together to tempt the Spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of them which have buried thy husband are at the door, and shall carry thee out. Then fell down straightway at his feet, and yield, she fell down, and yielded up the ghost. And the young men came in and found her dead, and carrying her forth, buried her by her husband. And great fear came upon all the church, and upon as many as heard these things. What was it that he had done? He had promised, you know, we're going to sell land, we're going to give all that proceeds to the church, but then they, they thought, wow, our land's worth more than we thought it was. We're going to hold back some of it, and we'll still give a, a nice gift to the church, but we'll tell the church that we only sold it for that amount that we give to the church. What happened to these two people? Because of that secret sin. You know, it was God himself who weighed Ananias and Sapphira and found them wanting. The church didn't know about it. Peter didn't even know about it until the Holy Ghost told him. It was a secret. Ananias and Sapphira thought it was a secret, but God knew. And God dealt with their sin so all the church could see and learn how he can deal with a secret sin. And I say can... Because when God deals with us as individuals, He does take into account our walk, and He knows our frame, and He knows the best way to deal with a secret sin to get us to the point of repentance. But this was a little bit different. Notice this. This is from the, the book Acts of the Apostles. This judgment, this is page 73, this judgment testified that men cannot deceive God that he detects the hidden sin of the heart, and that he will not be mocked. It was designed as a warning to the church to lead them to avoid pretense and hypocrisy and to beware of robbing God. So God can bring swift judgment upon a person because of a secret sin. And many of us may be dealing with secret sins and trying to overcome them. And in that, we are not like Ananias and, and uh, Sapphira, exactly like them. They were mocking God by being pretentious and hypocritical, as well as robbing God. But the truth is, friends, the truth is that none of us better have an attitude that we're okay. That we're okay with God. As long as we're practicing sin, secretly ignorant, or in any other way, oh yeah, but we're okay with God. I think the best course for us to take is the one where we fully understand that sin is evil. God hates sin, and God will destroy it. 
Wouldn't you agree? Let's go to the book of uh, Joshua. Let's go to the book of Joshua because it's there. As the church was about to gain the promised land, and we're right there as well, aren't we, friends, as a people of God? We're close to the coming of Jesus. We're close to the promised land. So this is a good example. But we can see here, we can see a, a, the interrelated results of, of secret sins. In fact, we can really see them pretty good. In Joshua chapter 6, we see that the children of Israel had just crossed the Jordan River after 40 years of wilderness wandering, and it was time for them to possess the promised land. Much like us, right? But prior to them entering Jericho, the Lord gave them a clear command as to what they were to do with the inhabitants and their possessions. In Joshua 6, verses 17 to 19, notice what we read here. And the city shall be accursed, even it and all that are therein, to the Lord. Only Rahab the harlot shall live, she and all that are with her in the house, because she hid the messengers that we sent. And ye, in any wise, keep yourselves from the accursed thing, lest ye make yourselves accursed. When ye take of the accursed thing, and make the camp of Israel a curse, and trouble it, but all the silver and gold and vessels of brass and iron are consecrated unto the Lord, they shall come into the treasury of the Lord. This was what the Lord said to them. Well, what did Israel do? Go to verses 23 and 24. And the young men that were spies went in and brought out Rahab and her father and her mother and her brethren and all that she had, and they brought out all her kindred and left them without the camp of Israel. And they burnt the city with fire and all that was therein. Only the silver and the gold and the vessels of brass and of iron they put into the treasury of the house of the Lord. Yes! They accomplished their mission just as the Lord had said, didn't they? You'd have to say yes, right? They did. Praise God for His faithful people, right? Well, all looked great in public, but was it really great with the Lord? we'll see that the story takes a bitter turn and Israel is in for a disheartening uh, surprise. Joshua 7 and verse 1. But the children of Israel committed a trespass in the accursed thing. For Achan, the son of Carmi, the son of Zabdi, the son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah, took of the accursed thing, and the anger of the Lord was kindled against the children of Israel. Now, in this passage, it was Achan who took of the accursed thing, right? It doesn't say all the children of Israel did it. It says Achan did it. But who was God's anger aroused against? Was it just Achan? It was against the entire camp of Israel. And this... Uh, brings us to a second result of secret sins. The first one, God dealt with supernaturally. Bam! This is a second result of secret sins. Um, 
not only the perpetrator of the sin is affected, but the secret sins of one individual can arouse the displeasure of God against his entire church. Had God continued, think about this, had God continued to fight for his people, he would have been sanctioning sin and encouraging its continuance. And he, he won't do that. God abhors sin. He hates sin. He just shows mercy towards us as we're overcoming sin. And let me tell you, friends, it only takes one secret sin, as we see here. But we can look at various times and places in the scriptures and see that this is displayed on various levels. For example, Adam transgressed in the beginning, didn't he? You know that in those days there were only two souls who composed God's church on earth, right? However, on whom is the judgment of God placed as a result of Adam's sin? All humanity, all of his offspring. We have all inherited the result of Adam's sin. In Romans 5 and verse 18, Paul says, Therefore, as by the offense of one, judgment came upon all men to condemnation. And then you have the principle of the leaven. 1 Corinthians 5 verse 6, Paul says that a little leaven leavens the whole lump. See? So as we think about this, let me share this with you from Patriarchs and Prophets, page 497. Speaking about Achan's situation here. She says, Achan's sin brought disaster upon the whole nation. For one man's sin, the displeasure of God will rest upon his church till the transgression is searched out and put away. Now again, I want to I tell you, there are a few reasons why God does it. Mainly it's because he has our best interest at heart. He wants to save the sinner. Here's another one. Testimonies for the Church, Volume 4, page 493. No man lives to himself. Shame, defeat, and death were brought upon Israel by one man's sin. Various sins that are cherished and practiced by professed Christians bring the frown of God upon the church. Now, when we look at these things and think about these things, there are questions to consider. How much do you and I truly love Jesus and his people, the church of God? Do we love the church of, of God in private when no one else is around or looking at us? Do we love the church so much that we will do nothing in secret to cause the frown of God to rest upon her? I want you just to think about those things. Those are questions that we need, each one of us, need to consider individually. Now I want to look at a third result of secret sins. Israel had destroyed Jericho, and it appeared as if all was well. God granted them victory, and it was time to press forward. Unknown to them, however, was the fact that there was secret sin in the camp. They went forth ready to take the next city, and it was the little town called Ai. 
Joshua sent out spies, you know, to view the city, and they reported to him that the city was too small to send the whole army of Israel. Maybe we should thank God for that. Can you imagine Ai destroying the whole army of Israel? So Joshua, he consents and he sends 3,000 men. That should do it, right? 3,000 men. And as they went to dispossess the city, the men of Ai came out and they chased Israel away. <laughs> they chased them away. And in that pursuit, 36 Israelites were slaughtered. 36 Israelites lost their life because of one man's disobedience and secret sin. Now this may appear as a small defeat, you know, but to Israel, it was so great a defeat that their hearts melted and became weak as water. In response to this humiliating defeat, Joshua fell down before the Ark of the Covenant and he began to mourn. Perplexed, you know, he was perplexed by it all. And notice what he says. Go to Joshua 7 and verse 7. He says, Alas, O Lord God, Wherefore hast thou at all brought this people over Jordan to deliver us into the hand of the Amorites to destroy us? Would to God we had been content and dwelt on the other side of Jordan. So what's he saying? He's complaining to God, isn't he? Why did you even bring us over here? Did you bring us over here to, so that the Amorites could just completely destroy us? I wish we would have stayed on the other side of Jordan. And when he ended his complaint, God responded to Joshua. Verses 10 to 12, chapter 7. And the Lord said unto Joshua, Get thee up, wherefore thou liest. He says, Get thee up, wherefore thou liest, thou thus upon thy face. Why are you on your face? Israel hath sinned. And they have also transgressed my covenant which I commanded them. For they have even taken of the accursed thing and have also stolen and dissembled also and they have put it even among their own stuff. Therefore the children of Israel could not stand before their enemies but turned their backs before their enemies because they were accursed. Neither will I be with you anymore except you destroy the accursed from among you. God gave Joshua some specifics there, didn't he? You sinned. You transgressed the covenant. There's an accursed thing among you. Hidden among you. Put among someone's stuff. And this brings us to the third result of secret sins. And that is, the secret sins of one individual can cause the church to lose her battles and, and fall before her enemies. Now let me ask you something, friends. Is the church engaged in warfare? Yes. And who is her enemy? Revelation 12, 17 says who our enemy is. And the dragon was wroth with the woman, that's the church, and went to make war with the remnant of her seed, which keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. It's been a war from the beginning. War and broke out in heaven. Satan and his legions are undoubtedly at war with the remnant church. 
And what is one of Satan's main strategies? How does he effectively war against the church? Let me share with you. <laughs> His main strategy, one of them, is to work through false disciples who enter the sheepfold over the fence and destroy the church by sowing strife and teaching falsehood, casting doubt, trampling upon our faith. Paul warned about this stuff. This is what what happens. That Satan has used it forever. And he uses it. Why? Because it works. No says from the Great Controversy, page 520. The great deceiver has many agents ready to present any and every kind of error to ensnare souls. It is his plan to bring into the church insincere, unregenerate elements that will encourage doubt and unbelief and hinder all who desire to see the work of God advance and to advance with it. Now, this only addresses the battle front that Satan attacks us on as a church body. But what about the battle that each individual member has against the enemy called self? Since the secret sins of one individual can cause the church to lose her battles, could it be that the secret sins of professed brethren has a weakening effect on those who are earnestly trying to overcome? Absolutely. By beholding, we become changed. I remember when I first became a... I want to be careful here. <laughs> I remember when I first became a, a, a Christian and I came into the church. And... Uh, I never did usually go to potluck. They would have potluck every week. But my very first potluck, I remember going in, and I had just, I'd been eating up everything I could read from the prophet, and I've already had gone through the Bible several times, and I was just soaking all this stuff up, and I just had read Councils on Diet and Foods. And I go to a potluck, and I'm astonished at what I'm seeing. And I go up to someone of experience, let's say, and, and bring this to their attention. And they pat, actually pat me on the, the shoulder and say, Oh, it won't be long. You'll be just like us. So I would tell you, friends, indeed, the secret sins of one individual can have a weakening effect on those who are earnestly trying to overcome those other church members. Sin affects everyone. It affects everyone. Sin caused the death of Jesus Christ. Listen to the, this. Uh, That's from Patriarchs and Prophets, page 497. The influence most to be feared by the church is not that of open opposers, infidels, and blasphemers, but of inconsistent professors of Christ. These are the ones that keep back the blessing of God, of the God of Israel and bring weakness upon his people. Let's think about these things, you see. 
we may think that as in our battle, and I understand why we, believe me, I'm a human being, I understand why we keep things secret. We don't want the embarrassment and the shame. And we, we are in battle with self. But we need to understand that while we are even going through these battles, it has an effect on the members around us. Let's move to the fourth result of secret sins by individuals. And really, if, if we can be reformed, beloved, if we can be reformed and overcome as individuals, I believe the ripple effect will straighten out the entire church because we would be obedient to God in all things. Wouldn't you agree? Let's go back to Joshua. Now that the, the Lord had told Joshua the cause of their defeat, I want you to notice again the warning that he gave. Joshua 7, verse 12. Therefore the children of Israel could not stand before their enemies, but turned their backs before their enemies, because they were accursed. Neither will I be with you anymore, except ye destroy the accursed from among you. So there was hope, wasn't there? And this is what God tells us as individuals. You may be dealing with something that's accursed, but there is hope. You, it needs to be destroyed from among you. Now the spirit of prophecy gives implications that this text is applied to the church as a whole. But more importantly, I think, to the leaders. The Lord said that he would no longer be with Joshua unless he destroyed the accursed thing. The fourth result of secret sins is this, friends. The secret sins of one individual will eventually fall upon the leaders of the church and they will be held accountable for those sins. Does that surprise you? Notice what inspiration says. Testimonies for the Church, Volume 3, page 269. If the leaders of the church neglect to diligently search out the sins which bring the displeasure of God upon the body, they become responsible for those sins. God's displeasure is upon His people, and He will not manifest His power in the midst of them while sins exist among them and are fostered by those in responsible positions. And in fact, we go, we talk about organization, uh, principles of organization in God's church, and, and that's a whole other topic, topic I can get into, and we've covered that in other studies before. You know, it can get to a point where God will actually leave that group. We see this as an example, the Jewish church, Ichabod, right? God has left, and then we have the apostolic church and such. But the point being made here is that it will fall upon the leaders because they, God has raised them to responsible positions to serve the brethren. And it sounds weird to those out in the world when you say, when you share and love a person, uh, educate a person about their sin in a loving way, of course, or as Jesus, the Holy Spirit, dictates, um, you're actually showing love for that person. Why else even bother? And this is the point. When you get leaders who don't even bother, it shows that they really don't love God's people. And that shows that they really don't love God. Because, because God loves His people. And God is love, as John says. But think about this statement. 
Think about this. Are you a leader in the church? Do you know that, that it's your duty? Or do you know what your duty is? And if you do know what your duty is in regard to sin, are you being faithful to your duty? And so, beloved, I've just I've, I've presented four interrelated results of the secret sins for an individual. And once again, let me go over them. Once again, they are, first, the secret sins of an individual can bring the quick judgment of God upon that individual. The second one was, the secret sins of one individual can arouse the displeasure of God against his entire church. By the way, when you see the church having these difficulties, I'll get to it in just a moment, I guess, but that's kind of a heads up that there's a secret sin going on somewhere. Right? So, secret sins of an individual can bring quick judgment of God upon the individual. Second, the secret sins of one individual can arouse the displeasure of God against his entire church. Third, the secret sins of one individual can cause the church to lose her battles and fall before her enemies. And fourth, the secret sins of one individual can eventually fall upon the leaders of the church and they will be held accountable for those sins. Now, in speaking about these things, I want to I consider the most subtle secret sin that exists within the church. And it is covetousness. I believe covetousness, friends, is the base sin really for all sin because it deals with a person's heart and selfishness, pure selfishness. Now, after the Lord warned Joshua that he would depart from him unless he removed the accursed thing, he tells him to sanctify and assemble the people. Joshua then conducted an investigation by the process of elimination. In the morning, all the tribes of Israel appeared before the Lord, and the tribe of Judah was taken out. And then out of Judah, the family of Zarhites was taken out. And out of the Zarhites, the household of Zabdi was taken. And out of this household, Achan was singled out, him and his family. And in Joshua 7, verses 19 to 21, we read, actually, Joshua's plea to Achan. It says, And Joshua said unto Achan, My son, give, I pray thee, glory to the Lord God of Israel. What's he saying? Listen to these words carefully, friends. He says, Give, I pray thee, glory to the Lord God of Israel, and make confession unto him, and tell me now what thou hast done. Hide it not from me. Did you know that when we confess our sins to God, we are giving Him glory? This is what Joshua is saying here. We are recognizing, friends, that His law is just and that He is righteous. So Joshua is saying, give glory to the Lord God of Israel. Make confession to Him. In verse 20, Achan answers, and Achan answered Joshua and said, Indeed, I have sinned against the Lord God of Israel, and thus and thus have I done. When I saw, and notice that he saw, right? When I saw. Friends, we must be careful of what we see, right? In that, 
Remember when we talked about the temptations of Jesus there in the wilderness? There were three types of temptations, remember? In this world, one of them, the first one was appetite. And specifically in this case with Achan, it was the lust of the eyes, right? So he says, When I saw among the spoils a goodly Babylonish garment and 200 shekels of silver and a wedge of gold of 50 shekels weight, then I, what? He says, I coveted them and took them. And behold, they are hid in the earth in the midst of my tent and the silver under it. And so I want you to notice that he coveted. And then he took of the spoils. Covetousness was the root of Achan's problem and it led him to practice deceit and theft. And it brought God's frown upon the people so much that there were people who died because of it. That's how serious it is. We must be aware Beware of the sin of covetousness. You know, we often stress the importance of all the Ten Commandments, and I mean, rightly so. We proclaim that they've not been abolished and that we are still obligated to keep them, and rightly so. And it's easy for us to recognize, though, you know, when when murder occurs, right? Or when someone's being disobedient, let's say children being disobedient to parents, or even a lot of times today adults are to their own parents. Uh, it's even easy for us to recognize when the fourth commandment's broken. I mean, we see it all over the Christian world, don't we? But how often do we recognize and reprove covetousness? You know, that tenth commandment? Think about it. Well, what does it mean to covet? Well, one way to covet is to wish for something earnestly. Now, this can be a positive. A positive. But in a negative sense, to covet means to have a strong desire for what belongs to someone else. On a basic level, therefore, covetousness means to have a strong craving for possessions. You'll remember Satan wanted the throne of God. He coveted that. But it just seems, and and today it's, it's just more and more, We want so many things. We want and want until our wants are out of control. And in spite of this, coveting in itself is not evil. What makes it evil is the object of our desires mingled with our ambition to gain that object. For example, Achan coveted evil because his desire was for that which the Lord commanded needed to be destroyed or consecrated to him. On the better side of coveting, the Apostle Paul exhorts us in 1 Corinthians 12.31 to covet earnestly the best gifts. We are told to covet spiritual things. We, We are to covet heaven. We are to covet after treasures that will last forever. Store our treasures in heaven, Jesus said, right? Have you ever wondered why it is that covetousness is so subtle? Well, as humans, we have desires. God has created us with the capacity to want. 
However, because of our lack of self-control, we allow our desire to overpower our ability to reason and make moral decisions. And as a result, we find ourselves thinking that our strong desires are legitimate when in reality we are being greedy and covetous. Let's go back to the book Patriarchs and Prophets, page 496. The deadly sin that led to Achan's ruin had its root in covetousness. Of all sins, one of the most common and the most lightly regarded. While other offenses meet with detection and punishment, how rarely does the violation of the Tenth Commandment so much as call forth censure? And on top of that, notice this quote. This is an astonishing quote. Spiritual Gifts, Volume 2, page 236. The greatest sin which now exists in the church is covetousness. That's the greatest sin that exists now in the church. And that was written in the year 1860. And at that time, the church, well, it wasn't as wealthy as it is today. So if covetousness was the greatest sin in 1860, how much more are we struggling with this leaven of sin today? Well, friends, do you realize that there's no institution more precious to God than is His church? It is the church of God that receives the affections of the entire universe. And all the angels of God are working on her behalf. With intensity, they are working to bring the church into perfect unity, but their labors are limited because of our secret sins. But change is possible. Change is possible, and a final reformation will come, just as God says it will. But what is needed in the church for this reformation to occur? What is needed in the church to bring her into that condition in which she may receive the latter rain that is promised? We need to know what sin is. And we must hate it as much as God does. We must love Jesus and His people so much that we want sin removed from us as individuals and as a people. We have to hate sin, and the only way to hate sin is to be converted. <laughs> we all we, we need Jesus. It sounds so cliche, but that's what we need. We need Jesus alive in our heart. And friends, does your heart ache because there is sin in the church of God? Do you wish for it to stop? The first thing that must be realized is that the cleansing of sin from the church must start within each one of us first. We must give ourselves fully to Jesus and have Him cleanse us from all the defilement. And if sin is to be removed from the church, it must begin with each of us. The Apostle John says in 1 John 1, verses 6 to 10, notice what he says. So I close up here. You know, when I say I close up, it's another 20 minutes. I'm just, just kidding. 1 John 1, verse 6, 10. If we say that we have fellowship with Him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not the truth. But if we walk in the light, as He is in the light, we have fellowship one with another, and the blood of Jesus Christ, His Son, cleanseth us from all sin. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, 
He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make Him a liar and His word is not in us. That's what we need. We need to confess our sins. When we do that, He's faithful and just not only to forgive, but to cleanse us. And that's what we need as a people. It's what we need individually and as a people. That's the first thing. Secondly, ask for the grace of Jesus, friends, to call sin by its right name. And then use principles as described in His Word to deal with sin in the church. And I will cover those principles in a, in a future study. But if we do this, then God's frown will be removed. It will be removed from us as individuals and as a people, and there will be such a revival of primitive godliness that hasn't been seen since apostolic times, friends. I'll leave you with these final words. Testimonies for the Church, Volume 3, page 360. God would have His people disciplined and brought into harmony of action that they may see eye to eye and be of the same mind and of the same judgment. In order to bring this state of things, about this state of things, there is much to be done. The carnal heart must be subdued and transformed. God designs that there shall ever be a living testimony in the church. It will be necessary... Get this. It will be necessary to reprove and exhort and some will need to be rebuked sharply as the case demands. Once again, I ask, do you have a longing for the return of Jesus? And do you believe He's returning for a church without spot or wrinkle? If you do, then we must confess to Him our secret sins and ask Him to give us power to put them away from us so we may be among those ready to meet Him when He does return. Let's pray. Father in heaven, again we thank you so much for your holy word. We thank you for your long suffering and mercy towards each one of us. And Father, I know that all of us struggle with secret sins. So I pray that the Holy Spirit will help us to take our eyes off the shame and the hypocrisy and, and the pretension and even the presumption and be focused more fully upon Jesus, our Lord and Savior. And allow the Holy Spirit to do His work in our hearts to change us, to put away these things, that Jesus may be glorified, that His death was not in vain. May we hasten His return by being faithful in doing these things in this cleansing work. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.